Good morning, everybody. It's nice to see everybody on this sunny morning. Let's open with prayer, and then we will get into our uh, lesson, 1 Samuel 27. So let's pray. Most merciful Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you that you have called us to yourself through your Son and by the power of your Spirit. Please be with us today. Be in my words. Be with all of us in the meditations of our hearts as we consider what you would have us to learn from your word. We ask this for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll get the sound figured out. I'm sorry. I think I was messing with it a little bit before Eric got here, so I may have been the problem. Um, As I was preparing for this week's lesson, uh, it was impressed upon me pretty early on that this is a difficult chapter to cover for a couple of reasons that we'll get into. Um, So I was consulting different commentaries, and one that really resonated with me was Dale Ralph Davis's commentary. And in it, he tells this story. In 1854, it was Charles Spurgeon's first year in ministry in London, and there was a cholera outbreak throughout the city. So he was called to bedside after bedside to minister to the sick, and almost daily he stood by the grave as he helped people bury their loved ones. And at first, Spurgeon just threw himself into his work with abandon and passion and zeal for the Lord. But over time, his circumstances soon overtook him. And he says, quote, he was weary in body and sick at heart. He saw what was going on. He started to talk to himself in his inner heart that he was going to be like all of those that he was visiting uh, at the bedside or bearing in the grave. And he began to believe that he would both succumb to the disease, cholera, and be like everybody else that he was seeing. So it was after one particular burial, this had been going on for a while, and he'd been telling himself, this is going to happen to him. He's going to die because of the disease. That he was walking down the Great Dover Road, and he saw this large sign posted in a shoemaker's window. And this was the quote. It wasn't an advertisement for help wanted or anything like that. It read, Because thou hast made the Lord, which is my refuge, even the Most High, thy habitation, there shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. So these words from Psalm 91 washed over him, and he began to say them to himself over and over in his heart. And he says at this point, this is Spurgeon speaking, Faith appropriated the passage as her own. I felt secure and refreshed. I went on with my visitation of the dying in a calm and peaceful spirit. So as we consider 1 Samuel 27, I've got a question for all of us to kind of keep in mind as we work through the text. When it seems like God is absent or far off from us, when we can't make sense of what's happening around us, what stories do we tell ourselves? What's the narrative that's playing in our mind and that we speak to our heart? And whose words do we take to our heart in those moments when God is nowhere on the scene? So to date, in 1 Samuel, one of the main points, one of the big ideas of this text is that the Lord looks on the secret things of the heart. But here in chapter 27, we, the readers and listeners, are going to be asked to consider our hearts from a different vantage point. When the Lord isn't in view, and we're the ones left speaking to ourselves, how deceived can we become? How twisted can our lives become? And as Ralph Davis points out, and all of the commentators agree, make no mistake, we all tell ourselves a story all of the time. But whose words, 
Whose voice do we allow to shape that narrative? Because what we tell ourselves, we eventually believe. And what we believe, that's then how we live our lives. So let's jump into the text. I think you have it in the handouts on the table. It's a brief passage. We're going to read 1 Samuel 27 all the way through 28, verse 2. That chunk is a a unit that belongs together. So 1 Samuel 27. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. And then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel, and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. For these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as sure to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. And when Achish asked, Where have you made a raid today? David would say, Against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of the Jeremielites, or against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was the custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking, he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore he shall always be my servant. In those days the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. And David said to Achish, very well, you shall see what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. All right, so the outline for today, we're breaking this into three parts. The first is David's inner narrative, which is chapter 27, verses 1 through 4, his inner narrative. Then David's outward actions, chapter 27, verses 5 through 11. And then David's very real dilemma, uh, chapter 27, verse 12 through 28, verse 2. So David's inner narrative David's outward actions, and David's very real dilemma. So first, let's look at that inner narrative, verses 1 through 4. If we're going to do our observation here, who is mentioned in these passages in the chapter? What names do we hear? Shout them out. Pardon? Ziklag? Akish? Akish, sorry. Yes? Saul? David, very good. We've got Ziklag, yes? So we've got David, Saul, Achish, who's the king of Gath. There's a couple of others. There's a large company of nameless people. Who's that? His wives, yes, Ahinoam and Abigail. And then his 600 men, right? So we've got a few players. We've got a couple of main characters in David, Saul, and Achish, then some bit players. 
three kings, including the army and the wives of one of the kings. But who has been a main character up to this point in Samuel who is not mentioned in the text? Thank you, God. Nowhere to be seen in this text. There's no word from the Lord indicating his point of view in chapter 7. There's no direction from God to any of the characters mentioned. And it's noteworthy that David doesn't seek the Lord in this instance. He doesn't inquire of him through prayer or through the ephod. And we read, and Sean taught uh, recently in chapter 25 of a situation where David didn't inquire of the Lord. How was that going to end had he acted on what he was thinking? Do you recall? He sends men to Nabal. That fool responds harshly to David's men. And then David tells his men to strap on their swords for a slaughter. And as Sean told us, if it hadn't been for the wise prophet like Abigail, David would have sinned in his anger. And now here in chapter 27, the author is showing us another side of David's fallen humanity. In chapter 25, he almost acted out in his anger. And here in chapter 27, he turns inward and acts out on his despair. So let's consider that despair for just a moment. There's three parts to David's statement in verses 1 through 4. He says, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than to escape to the land of the Philistines. And then Saul will despair of seeking me within Israel, and I'll escape out of his hand. So death, despair, and supposed deliverance. That's what David has in view here. So let's consider each of these parts of the story that David is telling himself in this this passage. Let me ask you first, is it reasonable that David thinks he will die at Saul's hands? Is there evidence to this point that indicates David has a basis for that belief? Yes, there is. Saul tried to kill David at least twice while he was living with the king. Saul has killed the priests who he charged with aiding and abetting David. And Saul has chased him throughout the land of Judah anytime he got word of David, trying to kill him at Keilah, the wilderness of Engedi, and the wilderness of Ziph. So the specter of death is very real, and it hangs over David here at this point in the story. But, as Sean highlighted, let's consider the Lord's faithfulness. At each potentially deadly point, Yahweh orchestrated events that spared David. And not only that, but the Lord also has anointed David by the hand of Samuel, his prophet. Yahweh, we're told, placed his spirit upon David in chapter 16. He's given David victory upon victory in battle, beginning with his victory over Goliath. And he had blessed and promised to preserve David through the words of Jonathan and Abigail earlier in the text. So both the word of the Lord and the events of David's life that Yahweh has orchestrated give clear evidence that David is secure and the Lord will protect him. But because he's turned inward and is starting to process things on his own, he's convincing himself of another story. So David had multiple data points that testified to Yahweh's faithfulness and goodness. But instead of looking up, he turns inward. And he leans on his own understanding of the situation and the circumstances at play. So the author is also doing something clever here within the text. The ESV translates this as David saying, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. But in Hebrew, it literally says, Now one day I shall be swept away by the hand of Saul. And that language swept away is important because David used the same phrase a chapter earlier when he tells Abishai that Yahweh will deal with Saul in his own timing. And who knows? Saul might go down to battle and be swept away in the fight. So 
In chapter 26, we have this remarkable confession of faith in Yahweh and Yahweh's gracious provision from David. And now in chapter 27, with Yahweh not on his heart or mind, David uses the same language to describe what he thinks will be his fate at the hands of Saul. Can you hear that shift in David's emotions? Using the same language, incredible profession of faith. I'm secure. Yahweh will take care of Saul in his own timing to, oh my gosh, I don't know what I'm going to do in these circumstances. I'm going to be swept away, washed away, just as I described what Yahweh would do with Saul. This is a massive swing in David's mental state and emotions. All right, so let's consider the second statement. There is nothing better than for me to escape to the Philistines. Does that hit you right? Does that make sense at all? I mean, we should be saying, what? What? Nothing better? There's, is, this is baffling on a couple of levels, right? First, we have to ask that question. There's nothing better for David than to go to the land of the Philistines? What has God promised? He has anointed him. He's promised David the kingdom. He has promised to deal with Saul. It's going to happen because we know the word of the Lord is sure. And yet David, that's nowhere in David's mind. At least the author is indicating it's nowhere in his mind. Secondly, does David have a good track record with the Philistines to this point? Not, not exactly. I mean, we've already said he killed their champion, Goliath, right? And he's fled to Achish once before, back in chapter 21. And Achish's royal court was suspicious of David. They recited how, you know, Saul has killed his thousands, David has killed his ten thousands. King, do we really want to bring this guy into our court? It's maybe not the wisest play. So David then, sensing that something was up and he was in danger, pretended to be mad so that he could flee. Thirdly, if David's going to flee somewhere outside of the boundaries of Israel, have we already read in this text, not in 27, but in 1 Samuel, of a more logical choice? Is there a place where David has already taken people for safekeeping? Do you remember? This was a year and a half ago, so I won't fault you if, uh, if you don't. In chapter 22, David left his father and mother and family in Moab with the king of Moab, with whom he received a friendly audience. So he already has a friendly alliance with the foreign king to whom he could logically go and know that he and his men would be safe. And yet he's saying, there's nothing better than for me to go to the land of Philistia. This, this does not make sense on multiple levels. David isn't thinking or processing this information correctly. So why Philistia? And more specifically, why Gath? Well, chapter 27 and the first two verses of 28 bring us to a break in the text. And the author is going to go on to describe the final days of Saul, as uh, Doug will kick off next week. But he's also highlighting the poetic arc of David and Saul's intertwined lives. So David enters Saul's story because of a battle with the Philistines. And now Saul will exit David's story because he's gone back into Philistia and getting, he's getting ready to go to battle with the Philistines. So this, this nice roundabout, we're going to tie a nice bow on this part of the story before we go into Saul's last days. But even accounting for the, author, the author's artistry here, David seems sure if he slips away to the Philistines, then Saul will despair in or find hopeless his pursuit of David. Again, another choice set of words that kind of describes and reflects David's inner state of mind here. David tells himself that Saul will eventually catch him and kill him. Despite Yahweh's promises and blessing and provision, David tells himself there's nothing better than to flee to the land of the Philistines. 
And David believes this is the only way Saul will give up the chase. Excuse me, the chase. <coughs> so he acts on those words and that belief, and he flees to the king of Gath. So now let's look at verses 5 through 11. And let's compare what happens here with David's first visit to Achish, uh, Achish in Gath. Do you recall who was with David in chapter 21? Did anybody accompany him the first time he went to Achish in Gath? Not a single soul. It was just David as a fugitive on the run trying to flee to the Philistines. Who's with him this time? 600 men, thank you. So 600 feared warriors, and who else comes with him? With them, actually. Is it just the guys? Their wives, their whole household. So this is a massive company accompanying David this time to Gath. And, of course, David's two wives. So this massive company means that David comes in power and strength, unlike the first time when he came as this nobody fugitive, one of the kings of the land. Now, how was he received the first time? I'll, I'll spare you the silence here. Achish's servants mocked him, so there's this sense of belittling David's importance when he comes into the court saying, isn't this one of the kings of the land? Like, he's just one of these local rulers here, not acknowledging that he was Yahweh's anointed king. And then David, sensing the danger, pretended to be insane, and, Dave, and Achish then underestimates David in that insanity and just kind of sarcastically dismisses him. I got enough crazy men in my court, in my kingdom. I don't need one more. Get him out of here. So how is he received this time? Does the king welcome him in? There's not a formal procession or welcoming of David, but since he decided to go live with Achish and he wasn't immediately expelled, we can assume there was at least some kind of a favorable reception, right? So he lives with Achish in Gath with his whole company. And then David asks for and receives the country estate of Ziklag. Now, it's difficult to figure out where Ziklag is. The commentators kind of disagree on the exact location. But most of them say it's roughly about 20 miles away from the royal Philistine city. So David would have been 20 miles away from the king's watchful eye. So now consider what that country town represents for David and his men. Up to this point in the story, where were David and his men sleeping before now? Out in the air. They're finding caves and the wilderness and groves of trees just to try to hide themselves. Where were these, family, where were these men's families and households at this point? Back in Israel, right? So under the watchful eye of Saul and his men, his spy network, keeping tabs on all of those who had declared allegiance to David by going with him, that cannot have been good or uh, restful, peaceful for David and his men. Do you think that weighed heavy on David as he was moving his men from point to point around the countryside, knowing that their wives and their children and their households were back under Saul's thumb and watchful eye? Put yourself in his shoes. Do you think that would have weighed heavily on David and his men? I think it's reasonable that that would have been a pretty heavy weight. So having to care for so many that weren't under his immediate protection, needing to keep up the morale of his troops as he was going about the countryside, and especially when you consider what David saw Saul did to those who did support him in the past when he slaughtered the priests, he knows what happens to those who support him. So 
with that in mind, what does Ziklag, which is a territory in southern Judah that was originally given by Joshua to the tribe of Simeon, what does Ziklag represent for David and his men? If all of that's in view, households with him, wives and children safe, away from Saul and away from the watchful eye of Achish. Safety. Yeah, what else? Security. Yeah. Safety, security, rest, freedom, a measure of peace. But again, think about that for a moment. David has turned to Philistia and Gath for rest, security, and peace. So what we know from our Bibles, does that sound right to our ears? No. This should be like a big red flag. Something is not right with David's thinking. And what we read in this account, given all that, was David successful in his efforts with what he and his men were doing? Did they experience a measure of success? Yeah, they did. He led successful raids on the raiders of southern Judah. He enlarged his possessions. We're told he secured the confidence of Achish, just like he had hoped, while at the same time likely endearing himself to the people of southern Judah because he's taken out those that were raiding his people there. And this went on for 16 months, almost a year and a half. But despite this success, we're also given a picture of David that's less than flattering. So let's consider a few more questions from this text. To this point in the biblical story, and we've already said this, but we've read of Yahweh-sanctioned military campaigns for the sole purpose of wiping out other people groups, right? So think back to Joshua. When Israel entered the land, they were given explicit commands to take out different people groups. And in chapter 15, Saul was given an explicit command to do the same thing to these Amalekites that David is now leading raids on. But here, does any word come from the Lord directing David to slaughter Geshurites, Gerzites, and Amalekites? No. None. We don't even know anything, really, about these G-men. So the Geshurites only show up one other time in the book of Joshua. There's nothing. The Gerzites show up nowhere else in Scripture. We do know a little bit about the Amalekites, whom Saul was supposed to devote to destruction. But there's nothing from the Lord here. So there's no specific crimes that they committed against Yahweh and his people. There's, There's nothing to indicate that David is in the right by slaughtering these folks. So we're given a picture of David taking it upon himself to butcher folks. And I'm not reading into the text here because all of the commentators tend to agree that raiders usually avoided bloodshed. And we get an example of that in chapter 30 with the Amalekites. When they lead a raid on Ziklag, they take a whole bunch of people with them. They don't kill many folks. So it was not common in the ancient world for raiders to slaughter everybody. So David's actually kind of stepping out of line here. And we're also told in this passage the reason why David kills everyone. Why why was that? No witnesses. The whole reason he's trying to kill everybody is so that he won't be found out by Achish as to what he's doing. So is that a godly reason for, for killing these folks? This is an uncomfortable passage, and it leads us to some uncomfortable conclusions because it's showing us David is a flawed man. The answer is no, it's not godly. So we're presented with a very troubling picture of David. He's the Lord's anointed king on one hand, and yet now he's a resident in Philistia who sees that land as his salvation, and he's become the butcher of Ziklag. He's doing it for personal gain, and he's doing it to keep his cover with the king of Gath. Again, 
if we put on our observation glasses here, we are not provided with a word from the Lord that explicitly endorses or condemns David's behavior. And does the author in this text even start to pull back the curtain and say, hey, reader, what David did wasn't right? Is the author giving us any kind of moral direction here? No. It's just the facts, and we're left to wrestle with David's behavior. So without those things, without the word from the Lord or any kind of commentary from the author, it leaves us with some ambiguity that we are meant to wrestle with. Are David's actions good? What do you think? Not on the whole, not on balance. Does, this, does his apparent success in his efforts justify his means? I don't know. Since he's dealing with the Philistine king, are all bets off? Can he do as he pleases? No answer. And will his bloodshed and treachery in this situation eventually catch up with him? Maybe. We'll see. The author is setting us up for a cliffhanger before switching over to the last days of Saul's life. So let's just briefly consider that cliffhanger and David's very real dilemma. We've already said that David appears to be successful in his actions. Achish now trusts David, and the king of Gath thinks David has completely alienated himself from his people in Judah. In fact, David's been so successful in his raids that Achish compels him to join the Philistine fight going forward. So he says, understand that you and your men will go out with me. This phrase is actually uh, very forceful in the Hebrew. It's not just, hey, I want you to come do this. It's, you must understand, David, wink, wink, that you and your men will go out with me. You don't have a choice. So this puts David now in a very tough spot because either he marches into the battle with the Philistines and he risks losing favor and status in the eyes of Israel if they see their anointed king coming in with a foreign invading army because as the king goes, so goes the people, or he remains faithful to Israel by turning on Achish. And David knows, given where he lives and the circumstances, Achish might actually prove a bit more efficient at dispatching of his enemies than Saul has up until this point. So again, David's now in a bind. Do I look like I'm turning on my people, or do I risk being killed by the king who's hosting me? And what's David's reply? Look at that verse, uh, chapter two, or verse 2. David said to Achish, very well, you'll know what your servant can do. Does he commit to anything in that? He sounds like a modern-day politician, doesn't he? Well, you'll see what I can do. I'm not going to give you one way or the other. But the author, again, is having a little fun with the Philistines because Achish's reply is, you will be my bodyguard for life. But we lose something in the translation because, again, literally in Hebrew, what Achish is saying is, very well, you will be the guard and watcher of my head. Has David disposed of somebody else from Gath and took, taken off their head? Yeah. So there's a little bit of play here that the author is doing. So, again, put this in... Uh, a linear format. Achish is saying, you and your men will join me in battle. David says, okay, you'll see what I can do. And Achish replies, all right, you're going to be the watcher of my head going in. And we, as readers of this text, should remember Goliath and how David disposed of that Philistine, cut off his head, and gave the route to Israel. So there's a little bit of foreshadowing in what's coming ahead. But we're left to wonder, how is this going to end? Because the text just abruptly stops there and moves into this next passage that focuses exclusively on Saul. So the author leaves us here without resolving any of that tension 
without answering whether or not David's actions are good or bad and how we're supposed to feel about that, how we're supposed to process that as he moves on to Saul's last days. So in conclusion, I think this gives us a few points. The author leaves us there at the beginning of chapter 28, not just because it's really good storytelling, and it is, but because he wants us to meditate on David's actions. David played a unique role in redemptive history, and yet he was a man with the same feeble frame as ours. He wasn't perfect, just as we're not perfect. So what can we learn from this episode in David's life? There's a couple of questions for you. When our circumstances press in on us, whose voice do we listen to? Whose voice do you listen to? The Lord's and what the Lord has said? or your own, and the story that you tell yourself over and over? What are the stories that we tell ourselves? How do we shape the reality of our world? And how does that internal narrative that we constantly say to ourselves, and again, everyone always has an internal story that they're telling themselves over and over, how does that internal narrative shape what we believe to be true? Because if the Lord isn't in view, if it isn't his voice, his promises, and what he has done and is doing in our lives, if that's not what is shaping us, then we'll be left to lean on our own understanding. And as we're told, there's a way that seems right to a man, to a man but its end leads to death. Dale Ralph Davis summed this up nicely in his commentary this way. David was talking to himself, and what he kept saying to himself determined his actions. What you say and keep saying to the center of you will direct your way. All of us propagandize our souls. That is, we constantly talk to ourselves. How crucial it is to feed our souls with true propaganda, especially about the adequacy of our God. So that leads us to Jesus, or at least we should look to him. David was a flawed man who leaned on his own understanding and now finds himself in a bind at the beginning of chapter 28. We are flawed men and women who lean on our own standing and make a mess of our lives all the time. But there was a son of man and a son of David who learned obedience through what he suffered. When he was tested in the wilderness, he replied again and again with the words, it is written. Not what I think, but it is written. Reminding his tempter and himself of what his father had said. And when he found himself in a garden, sorrowful to the point of death and pleading with his father for another way, he looked to his father and said, Thy will be done. He endured the cross and its shame because of the joy that was set before him and on which he had fixed his gaze. And being made perfect, he now has become the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. He is our source of salvation. Not a ruler, not a leader, not another land that we can escape to. He is our rest, our peace, and our security. So let us learn to look to Jesus when we talk to ourselves in our inner hearts. May we remember his words of promise. May we remember his work of love on our behalf. And may we learn to repeat the words of Psalm 42 and 43. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for difficult passages like this one where we aren't given clear-cut answers, that things aren't as black and white as we would like them to be, and you make us wrestle with the ambiguity and discomfort. Help us, each, each one of us, to take from this passage 
something that we can apply to our own hearts, where we can examine the stories we've been telling ourselves, the the despondency and despair that has started to set in because we've taken our eyes off of you and we haven't filled our hearts and our minds with your word, your promises, a remembrance of the things that you have done for us, your people. And may we remember that if you sent your son to die for us and pay that debt that we could not pay, is there any length with you that you won't go to to save us? Is there anything that can separate us from you? May we fix our gaze on these things and remind ourselves of these things and turn our hearts to you so that we may always praise you. We ask this in Jesus' name for our good and your glory, Father, in the power of your spirit. Amen. All right. We have time. Do you have any questions about this brief text? South and a desert land, so yeah. He's like saying general area. Yes. A general geographic area, yeah. He's not giving the king of Gath any more specifics than he needs to, and in fact, that coupled with the outright lies paints a picture of a deceiver here. Yeah. Thank you for the clarification. All right, next week. We have uh, a very much anticipated lesson from Doug on Saul and the Witch of Endor. So join us for that. Thank you. Have a good day.